Well, good morning again, and welcome to Deep Creek Baptist Church. Um, I think I know every single one of you. I'll reintroduce myself. My name is Jeff Stevens, and um, Pastor Jerry asked me to fill in for him today while he's out on the mission field, which is, um, it's a unique honor to be asked by a pastor, a head pastor of a church, to stand in and teach uh, the congregation. And I can understand that for a pastor, when you leave, and you leave your congregation in somebody else's hands, you can feel quite uneasy about it. Even if your friends or even your theology seems to match up. I know Jerry's wondering what's Jeff going to teach from the pulpit today. <laughs> and he's hoping I won't say something that's way off from whatever is, uh, you know, in his wheelhouse. So instead of trying to please Jerry this morning, what we'll do is we'll try to please God. And that way, we'll all be right. Um, Again, I thank you for letting me teach you this morning and be with you and pray with you and sing with you. It's definitely a unique honor, so thank you very much. I'm going to start church out a little bit different this morning. We're going to do a little exercise. So no push-ups. Okay, we won't do any push-ups. That'll be a little weird. But we're going to do a breathing exercise. And not a breathing exercise in some sort of mystical way. But I want to do this just to prove a point. Um, And I think you'll find when we get to the end of the message that when you breathe with me, you're going to find that this point is well taken. So if you will, just for one moment, without going into a coughing fit, because I know some of you are sick, to include my wife, I want you to take a deep, deep breath in through your nose with me. And then breathe out. We're going to do it one more time. Ready? Deep breath in through your nose. And then relax and breathe out. And just there in the quiet, you've actually created a physiological response inside of your body. It's actually biology, right? What you just did lowered your stress. I don't know if any of you feel it. But there's a specific quiet that comes right after a couple of those breaths where you feel relaxed. You lowered your blood pressure. You actually lowered your blood pressure a couple of points. You slowed down your heart rate and you purposefully slowed your breathing right down. You did things to yourself physiologically by taking in a breath. We're going to talk this morning about a verse that most of you have probably used or wrestled with or talked to people about before, and that's 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, my goodness, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And you can open there now, and we'll read it in a few minutes. And for those of you who've memorized this verse or have used it before in contemplation or in defense of the Word of God, or have been around church for a minute, you've heard it preached. We reference this quite a bit about how the word of God or the scripture is breathed by him. God has breathed the scriptures. And I've contemplated on this a lot lately as I have friends who wrestle with the validity of scripture itself. It's a verse we turn to regularly to just say, look, The Bible is good because God breathed it. And I want to talk about what that means, 
What does it mean that God breathed the scriptures to us or just textually? What does it mean that he breathed the text? But first, I'm going to back way up and we're going to talk about what's significant about today in history. So today is March 1st. March 1st, 1420. A few years ago, nobody in here probably remembers the day, but Pope Martin V issued a papal bull. As you know, this is pre-Reformation, the 1400s. Lots of turmoil in the Catholic Church. Uh, We're 400 years past schism. Churches are breaking away from each other. People are trying to write the Bible in other languages. And the church in Rome is the biggest, strongest church that's out there. And they hold all reason. And this papal bull authorized the execution of all supporters of Jan Hus and John Wycliffe. Some of you may have heard the word John Wycliffe before. He attempted to write the Bible in the common people's language of the time. So he wanted people to be able to read their Bible. It sounds like a fantastical idea in the 1420s. For us today, you can drive probably to Walmart and pick up the Bible in at least two languages. You can go to a Christian bookstore and pick it up in most likely many. You can go to almost any part of the world and pick it up in the local language. But at the time, it would have been in one. It would have been in Latin. It would have been the Vulgate. Well, most people didn't even read. Say nothing about some of the educated people. If they didn't read in Latin, they didn't read the Bible. That becomes problematic. So as the Pope puts this out, uh, it spurred a big revolt by the followers of Jan Hus would have been called the Hussites, and they were from Bohemia, which is where the Czech Republic and Slovakia are today. A 15-year conflict breaks out, five consecutive crusades. So if you're, any, if you're a, a church history buff and you read about the crusades, we can argue about this a different time. Some of the crusades were definitely um, good for the church, and some, some were very, very bad ideas. And these were five crusades basically just sent to stamp out the followers of a man who wanted people to have a little bit of ability to read the Bible in their own language. It finally ended with the Catholic Church allowing them to practice their own, we'll say, form of Christianity. It wasn't theologically a lot different. It just had some practices, some dogma that was different. And the Catholic Church kind of backed up and said, all right, we'll we'll let this go on. But why did the Catholic Church hate these men so much? And I'm not uh, up here to talk about the Catholic Church. I want to focus on this moment. Why is it that an organization would not want these people to be able to practice this way? So John Wycliffe at this time, he'd already been dead about 40 years. Um, And he... uh, He really wanted these Bibles to be put out there so people could read, take in the Bible, and practice what the Bible will say preaches, right? So just shortly after that, you have Jan Hus come on the scene. He was born in about 1369. He lived until about 1415. And he was what we would call a pre-reformer. If you look into the Reformation of the church, there's one name that comes up, of course, pretty... Luther, right? So Luther is who we think of as the reformer. But there were plenty of men before Luther who were really working to 
reform the church. What does that mean to reform? It means to go back to what they believed the church was established for. The church, not as a, a papal organization or an ecclesiastic organization, but the body of believers and how they conducted themselves. This guy was smart. He was educated in Prague. He became a priest in 1400. He was the confessor or really the, uh, the spiritual advisor to the Queen of Bohemia. He was the dean of the theological faculty in Prague. And if you can think back to year 1400, he had a church that had 3,000 congregants. That's pretty cool. Slightly bigger than Deep Creek Baptist Church. Um, 3,000, that just blows my mind that this many people were coming to listen to this guy. He preached against the ecclesiastical system. So really what the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church had set up, which was a series of leaders that were somehow closer to God than, say, you or me, just kind of the average churchgoer. And they really did administer or exercise authority over the people. Much less service, much more authority. And he really preached against that. He also advocated for a return to poverty of the church. So you see this being problematic. This is an issue today as well. He wanted a church that went alms, offerings, tithes, gifts, whatever you want to call them, whatever category you put them in, went into the church. They were used by the church for service. He didn't believe that they should be used to build fantastical uh, chapels and buildings and design and clothing and send uh, popes, priests, bishops on, on trips. He did not believe that the money should be used to make the church richer. He believed that the money should be used in the church for the church. Kind of like how Deep Creek has a big get-together and they spend the money on food for each other. Or if you've sat in a meeting, uh, I've had the pleasure to sit in a men's meeting, the money is used for people in the community that have needs, not to build a steeple onto Deep Creek Baptist Church. It's used for the community, and this is what he advocated for. He wrote an article in about 1412. It was called Castio de Indulgentis. Latin term, he denounced what was called the Catholic indulgences. So indulgences, um, we'll get into here in just a second, but he was summoned to the Catholic Church. Mind you, the church is the authority, and the church is also tied to the state. And this is where, this, this can be very difficult when the church is tied to the state. I know a lot of us like to really think we wish we had a Christian government. We need to be very careful what we pray for sometimes, because depending on who's in charge, the church can do some pretty horrible things. So the church says, come on, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about what you believe. We'll come to some middle ground. He was offered safe passage. When he gets there, they made him dress up in his priestly garb. And they told him to reject all of his ideas. His sins would be forgiven and he could go back to his church. And he did not. He, he stood by his beliefs. So they stripped his priestly garb off of him. And in the church, they set him on fire. He burned to death. He burned to death, believing that the people, the 3,000 people in his congregation and the students at the university 
should be able to know God by the reading of their Bible. That is an amazing thing to think of in light of today. We all sit with a Bible in the language that we can read, probably on your nightstand or somewhere within arm's reach, or for many of us, on our telephone. And I think mine's got um, over 100 languages on my phone. This is what he burned to death for. The church burned him. What is an indulgence? So Latin indulgences, when you look at the Vulgate or the Bible in Latin, it's a term used in the Old Testament to show kindness or a release from captivity. So if you were indulged, you were typically released from whatever you owed or from whatever captivity you were in. You were indulged and allowed to leave. So um, they had taken a twist on this, and the church believed, or may still believe, that God has given them the authority to exercise indulgences or payment for what are called temporal sins. Sins that don't keep you out of heaven, sins that are just kind of daily sins, temporal sins. I said something wrong to my wife today. It wasn't necessarily something sinful that's going to keep me out of heaven, but it wasn't the right thing to do. I looked upon a woman in a way that I shouldn't have, and I didn't necessarily do anything with her, so it wasn't a mortal sin. It was a temporal sin. Maybe I didn't give all my money in the, in the, in the basket when it went by. I saved a couple of those singles. And it's not a mortal sin, it's a temporal sin. So what the Catholic Church did basically is say, okay, we got a way for you to pay for that. And they gave what was an earthly punishment, essentially. And they did so through, through acts of penance or actions, things you could do for the church um, through prayer, repetitive rosary prayer. For any of you who come out of an Orthodox or a Catholic background like me, it was common that you would repent to your priest, to a man, and say, these are the sins that I committed over the course of the last week or the last month. Or if you were like me, you would say, it's been like four years since I've confessed my sins. And he would say, go, repeat the rosary, and then he would give you a number ten times. And this was payment for your temporal sin. At the time um, of Jan Hus and throughout all the Crusades, monetary indulgences were used to fund the church. They used the money from making people feel guilty about the sins they committed to fund the church, to fund its leadership, to build its buildings, to fund the government, and to build up the Catholic church. This is what they were doing with the money, and this is why he was so against the church. This is the problem with the Bible being written in English, or... or um, you know, any of the Eastern Bloc uh, languages of the time or German, um, what would happen is people would start reading their Bible and finding out that indulgences are, are not in there anywhere. And if people know that, they'll stop giving. And that's why they kill them. You see, what happens is it minimizes the work on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all the just him he died for the unjust me so that he might bring us to God 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. They were taking the power away from Jesus Christ to die for your sins once and for all and saying, well, Christ died for those sins, but for these sins, we get to decide what your punishment may be. You see, we know that's incorrect because God poured out his wrath on one man. And it was not me. And it was not you. And no man gets to decide who that person is that the wrath is poured out on and the punishment is for because he poured it out on Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago on that cross, he took it all. So the problem becomes sin then. How is our sin removed? And what can we do to keep it out of our lives? Sin becomes this issue in our life where the church tries to leverage it in order to get us to follow or to get us to believe something or to get us to give our money to build up guilt in your heart. This is something that's been going on since Jesus even stepped foot on the earth. We read it in the Old Testament. We have the law. Pharisees made people feel about as guilty as you possibly could. Very similar system. They had a system of almsgiving, which we call tithes. A tithe, if you ever really want to read into a tithe, and although it's talked about in the modern church pretty regularly, you should tithe to the church, I challenge you to go and read it. There's not one, there's not one in the modern church that tithes. Just giving 10% of your money is not enough. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes into tithing. So I would urge you to be careful when you read it. You might learn some things. But this sin, how does it go away? How, what do we, how do we get it out of our lives? Knowing in the very specific yet theological general sense, Jesus took my sin away, it's just easy to say, well, Jesus took it. But how is it removed? Well, I think we need a system of things, some points that lead us to understand how that sin goes away. And first, I'd like to remind you, you're not alone. Guess how many sinners there are sitting in this room? All of us. Romans 3.23. Who has sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. So when the guilt sets in about sinfulness, we remember we're not alone. That whole term, misery loves company. People searching and seeking out the misery in their lives and hanging out with people. All you got to do is go to church and hang out with all kinds of miserable people. Right? If we put that on the sign, I think we'd get more people to come. Nobody wants to come hang out with holy, pious people. No sin is unique. You can debate that there's levels of sinfulness and unforgivable sin, but sin is not unique in that everybody is sinful. God knows it. He knows your sin and my sin. He knows the sin of every person walking the planet, people not walking now under it, and the people of the future, he knows every single one. But here's what's cool. He provided an escape route for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He made a way for us to be with him. Confess. This is how our sin is removed. 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. 
And then finally, Romans 6.23, part of Romans Road. Many of you have studied that before, right? Except that Christ died for us, even when we were sinners. So this is how our sin is removed. Realize that you're just not alone. You're here with all the other sinners. You're not unique. You're not special because of whatever it is. Whatever sin you committed doesn't make you outside of his uh, ability to save you. And then confess what that sin is to him and allow it to take, him, take it away from you through his death, which he, he already did. He already paid that price on the cross. As a believer and somebody who is sitting in the congregation today, I know some of you wrestle with this because I do, and I just cannot imagine I'm alone. That at some point in your life, maybe yesterday, maybe this afternoon, maybe five years ago, or maybe it'll be in the future, you're going to wonder how to keep that sin out of your life. You're just in a spot where you're like, how do I stop thinking about this? How do I stop drinking this or doing this or doing that or whatever it is that you've got in your life that you can't seem to get rid of. God, how do I? Well, you see, he set up a plan for this too. You see, Romans 6, 6 and 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells you straight up, believe the old you is dead. He made a new you. When he died that day, when you confessed to him and when you accepted him, that old man, he died or old woman. I don't mean old. I get that wrong. I mean the previous. Right? That person is gone. And sometimes you just need to kind of embrace that joy. That person that I was the day before I accepted him is no longer. And set that person aside. This is pretty cool. If I know many of you have probably studied Romans Road. It's like, you know, the contemporary church loves Roman Road because it's really simple, right? We're all sinful. Confess your sin. He paid for it. Accept him. Go on. It's like, it's the easy way to reach the lost, right? Here's, here's what Paul said about Jesus. But here's one thing we skip over in Romans 8, 13. Every once in a while, become an enemy to sin. What does that mean to be somebody's enemy? It means you hate them. I know what it's like to have an enemy. Somebody that just burdens you with the thought of them because you hate them so much. That should be our sin. Whatever it is in your life that you just can't seem to get rid of, you need to learn to hate it, to get rid of it, to think that it's the most awful thing that's happening to you. I don't think this is an active thing that you're, you know, walking around town being all hateful towards some specific action. You know, if you're a man and you see a pretty girl, you don't have to look at her and be like, oh, I hate you. That's probably weird. Probably get you kicked out of Walmart. But I think it's a, in a very passive sense. You understand that you've changed your paradigm, right? You've changed your paradigm to yesterday I liked those things. Today I'm saved. I don't like that anymore. Say it to yourself. Declare a radical allegiance to God. In Romans 6, 13, uh, Paul tells us to declare an allegiance to God. And I think that's pretty cool, you know. We'll teach our kids to pledge allegiance to the flag. Do we teach our kids to pledge allegiance to their God? He's only the most important being in the universe. We should probably think of him as such. He should be something that we look towards as the most holy, most amazing uh, being ever in history. 
We declare allegiance to him because of who he is, not who we are. This one, I, I, I think this is a cool point, and this is something that I've wrestled with, and I know that people who've ever wrestled with some sort of addiction have wrestled with this as well. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Romans 13, 14 talks to us a little bit about how we conduct our lives. And I like to word it this way. Don't make plans that open up the door to sin. Don't make plans that open up the door to sin. So what does that mean? Uh, When you're trying to keep sinfulness out of your life, it really means um, make a conscious decision not to turn back towards people that you're with that influence you in a way that's going to lead you to be sinful. I'm a pretty simple guy. I do not go out during the evening at work or, or during the work week or on the weekend and go hang out in bars. I'm not saying I haven't been to a bar since I've been saved. But I had a point in my life where this was my life and it was unhealthy and it was killing me. So why would I go back there? Because do you know how many of the people in that bar care about my salvation? This many of them. None of them. I'm clear. I'm not saying you can't go to one of the bars downtown and have a sandwich and, and, and enjoy fellowship with a friend. What I'm saying is, if you have a problem doing something, don't go spend time with those people. Do not open those doors that allow you to go do things. And I use that as an example, but you know there's at least a million other things that we do, actions that we take, people that we spend time with, um, internet sites we visit, TV shows we watch, radio programs we listen to, fill in the blank. Things that we do, don't open those doors. Um, Colossians 3.2 talks to us a little bit about developing good habits. Here's some good habits for you. If you have a pen, write them down. This is going to be monumental. Read your Bible. Go to church. Fellowship with people that are like you. Do I need to repeat those for anybody? This is stuff that's really hard to remember when you're a believer. Read your Bible. Go to church. Hang out with other people who are like you. We're going to read our Bible because it's going to tell us how awesome God is and how he lowered himself to the most lowly of all low for us because he loved us. We're going to go to church because we're going to learn things about him. We're going to talk about him. We're going to glorify him. We're going to lift up songs to him because he's worthy. And then we're going to hang out with people who also love him. And they're going to be a good influence on us. They're going to allow us to love them and find ways to love them in their weakness and they can find ways to love us in ours. Right? Non-believers know us how. This is the way we love one another. That's fellowship. They know us because we love one another. They know us because when they say, hey, we've got this thing going on Friday night, and you say, I can't go, I've got a Valentine's Day dinner at my church, and they're like, why would you go do Valentine's Day dinner at your church? It's not because it's the best steak in the county, okay? It's because you love each other. That's it. It's simple, right? Hebrews 3.13 also talks to us a little bit about accountability, 
and my encouragement would be to find somebody that's an accountability partner. Mine lives a long ways away, but he's been my accountability partner for probably the better part of 25 years. And it's important to have somebody in your life who can say to you, you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong. And then listen to them, even if it makes you mad. For some of you, it's your spouse. I would say having somebody outside of your marriage is very important as well, though. Because sometimes people outside of your marriage will tell you things you're doing inside of your marriage that aren't right and call you on it. That can be uncomfortable, right? I know as a guy, if your wife's looking at you funny and you can tell she's saying to you with her mind, you're doing that wrong, you're like, no, I'm not. You're doing it wrong. But if somebody else says to you, hey, you need to treat your wife better. Hey, you need to lay hands on your wife and pray for her. Hey, you just need to tell your wife you love her. That's a crazy concept. Those are things that really hit home. So an accountability partner in all things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, to, he, he talks to us about sport, and I think this is pretty cool. He talks about running the race, and when you're a boxer, we don't box at the wind, right? Um, and sport's important because at the time in the region, there was a lot of physical sport, wrestling, boxing, running, right? The Olympics. People were beating each other up in the dirt kind of like the old day UFC. Paul recognized this. He knew that when he used it as a reference, people would get it. Fight like a boxer. What does that mean? It means we train. That means we read and we spend time with people that are like us and we train for the fight. That's how we keep sin out of our life. I'm going to make this portion of this quick. Um, I don't want to dwell on it. You can ask me questions later. But I would say beware of false teachers. I'm going to give you a short list. Some of these might hit home. Some of these people do not care about your salvation. They only care about temporal joy. And I call them prosperity preachers, and some of you know who they are. And if you want to question me afterwards, feel free to come up, and I'll give you a whole pile of reasons why you shouldn't have these people in your life. These people sell salvation right here in our country. They sell it daily. You can pull up their names and look up their net worth. And if you find it's in the millions and they live in a mansion, you need to question whether or not you're reading their books or watching their videos or listening to their music. Because if you're a multi-multi-millionaire and there's people around you starving and don't know Christ, sir, you have a problem. And I have a problem with you. Here's a short list. Joel Osteen. Creflo Dollar. Although he does have a very cool airplane. Benny Hinn. I've needed things gone from me before, but I dare him to hit me with his sports coat to try to get it out. We're going to do that whole fight like a boxer thing. T.D. Jakes. Joyce Meyer. Paula White. Anybody know who Paula White is? She's the spiritual advisor to the President of the United States. She prayed at the National Day of Prayer. I encourage you to look her up. Fred Prince, Kenneth Copeland, Robert Tilton, Eddie Long, Juanita Bynum, Paul Crouch, Joseph Prince, biggest megachurch in the world in Indonesia, Stephen Furtick, Charlotte, North Carolina, net worth $50 million. 
Slightly more than is in the bank account for Deep Creek, I'm sure. <laughs> Elevation Church. Their music's all over the radio. It's satanic. They teach you to sow seeds to store up your treasures in heaven. I don't care how much money you give to that church. Jesus doesn't love you more or less because you give money to Stephen Furtick. He's a liar. And his music entices people. The answer to setting aside that sin is the word of God. It's all right here. It's in this book. Read the word of God, know the word of God, write that word of God on your heart. This is the thing, is as many people as I've had counsel with, either for my own or for theirs, I often hear things like, I'm waiting to hear on God. I'm waiting to hear from the Lord. I'm waiting to hear Jesus speak to me. I'm waiting for that still, small voice. I've been praying for this, and I haven't heard back from God. My first question every single time with people is, how often are you reading your book? Read the book. And almost 100% of the time I hear, mm, not enough. Well, if I want to know what my wife wants for Christmas, but I don't ever ask her, then I'll never know. Much the same, if I want to know what God's got for my life, I should probably communicate with him. This idea that there's going to be some sort of miraculous still small voice that's going to pop up in your head and give you the answers to why your kids don't obey you or why you can't keep drinking a case and a half of beer every night or why your finances aren't squared away or, or why the cancer doesn't leave or why you're growing hair on the bottom of your feet or whatever the issue is in your life. It's not magic. He wrote the book for us so that we could get intimately familiar with him by reading it. That's my encouragement. I'm going to go quickly through some verses so we can get towards wrapping up. Don't pull these up in your Bible. I'm going to read through them fast. But the reason I'm going to read through them is because I want you to understand that this is biblical. It's not a concept that I came up with. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So talk about it. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written for then you will make your ways prosperous and then you will have success. Not in the um, corporeal sense, but in the salvation sense. You will find God. Nehemiah 8.3, he, Ezra, read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a cool story because Nehemiah has just left Babylon. He's been sent back to reestablish the city. So he's reestablished Judah. They're building the walls to protect themselves from people coming in and ambushing them. And as soon as they've got security set up, they read the Bible every day from sunup to sundown. Ezra was in charge. He had other scribes with him. They would just read the book so people could come and listen and learn. This is why we're establishing God's land because of him. This is his word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing 
in hearing by the word of Christ. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse is often used because we like to say, well, the enemy's gonna be brought down because the word of God is a two-edged sword and by golly, I'm gonna use this thing to take the enemy down. And I dare you read this book and see if that two-edged sword needs to be used on your own heart. It's important. This is what this book does for us. It pierces us. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Job 23.12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than food. More important to us than eating is reading this. So here it is. If you turn there earlier, turn there with me again or lift your Bible up. Be prepared to read. I'll let you sit. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. I know most of you have read this many, many times. Read it with me again. I want you to really grasp what I'm going to put down here for you. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How much of scripture? All of it. How does it get to us? It's breathed. Here's what I find cool about this. The word breathed. The word breathed in Greek is theonoustos. Theonoustos is a cool word because it is a, a, uh, a compound word. So if you know a little bit about language, about lin linguistics, the definition of a compound word is when I take two words that have a meaning and when I jam them together, it doesn't mean what the two words meant separately. It actually gives you a new word or new meaning. You see, theo does not mean God. Theos means God in Greek. Neustos meaning to blow or to blow out. When we take theonoustos and we stick them together, we create a new word, God breathed. If you were to take God and breathe, and stick them together, God breathe is one word. It is not an action, it's a noun. It is a tangible, physical, touchable, experienceable thing in our life for God to breathe. It literally means that the breath of God comes out onto us. And I know somebody in the room is thinking it right now. This has happened at one point in history before, and we've all read this story, the creation story. I'll read it for you to remind you. Genesis 2-7, Moses wrote this about creation when he talked about Adam. He said, then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground, and he breathed. Into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Here's the cool thing about this. So we looked at theonoustos in the Greek. And now we'll look at the Hebrew. See how they join. God is so consistent. It just blows my mind when I read these things and I'm like, this is not a mistake that God wrote it this way. 
And this is why we're supposed to be reading this book because we find these things in it that excite us, that make us know God loves us. He's got a plan for us and he wants us to dig in on it because we have these moments where we're like, this is what it means. I mean, it doesn't, that verse in 2 Timothy doesn't mean God wrote the Bible. It means it's tangible. It's physical. It's not just a pile of paper and words. It actually has the ability to change us. See, here's the cool thing. Lord God formed man and he breathed. That word in Hebrew is nafak. It means to blow, to blow out. So God blew into his nose. And then he received the breath of life. See, that word breath is not the same word as breathe. That word breath is neshama. In Hebrew culture, neshama meant soul. He actually blew Adam's soul into him. The soul wasn't a bunch of words. The soul wasn't just some thought of air moving. This was a tangible, physical, spiritual being that came to be in the image of God, Imago Dei, because God blew it into him. Theonoustos. Every piece, every part, every word of this scripture, when you read it, is like God blowing his soul onto you. It's like he is filling you with himself. Neshama. He's breathing his soul. He's filling you. I want you to think back to the beginning just for a minute. Come up if you like, if you want to finish with piano. Let's think back to the beginning just for a moment and the short exercise that we did. I want you to do it with me one more time. So the piano plays and it becomes quiet and we get ready to pray. If we'll breathe together again and consider what's going on inside of us when we think of breathing. So if you will, breathe in with me through your nose. Let it out. We'll do it one more time. Breathe in. Breathe out. The physiological response that you just had inside of your body happened one more time. Your heart slowed down. Your blood pressure dropped. You became relaxed. You can almost feel the peace. I think God made it that way. Because when we do a simple exercise like that, when we breathe and we can make that physical change in us, it gives relevance to verses. Passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where God tells us that all of his scripture, he breathed, he poured it out into us. 
He poured his soul into us so that we would know him better and become more intimately familiar with who he is. My encouragement for you as you go on through the week, this week, would be what changes can God do in your life if you would just allow him to breathe into you? When you breathe in through your nose, just like Adam, the air enters your nose and you are filled. Through the reading and hearing of this word, you are filled with him. Very filled with him because he is sufficient. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the word of God that you have given us so that we may not forget your son, his plan, your plan, Lord, that he executed. That we would be constantly reminded through the reading and hearing of your word of how great you are, how holy you are, and how you have paid the price for our sin. We ask that you would help us to stay away from the sinful things in life. But you also, we also ask that you would help us to be motivated to become familiar with you by spending time with you daily, reading your word. We again, God, ask that the missionaries from the church would be blessed plentifully, that you would give them much work to do, that they would come back tired and hungry and ready to share their experiences, that their hands and feet would be blessed, that their voices would be blessed, that the work they do would be pleasing to you, Lord, that it would not ever fall short. And God, we ask that you send us out this week to be your messengers, that we would help people to understand that this book is not just a history book or a collection of writings or some ancient mysticism, that it is relevant, that it is useful, that it is you, Lord, and that you have breathed it out as you intend on breathing it out upon us so that when we read it, we may be filled with you. We ask for all of our blessings, Lord, in the name of our precious and our holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak to you this morning. So go in peace.